This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. You're listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. Ko Mikaela Naimen toko ingoa. My name is Mikaela Naimen and I'm your host. Welcome. This show focuses on the arts and creativity in Taranaki and beyond. We aim to cover the diversity of arts from painting, literature, songwriting, theatre, pottery, poetry, sculpture and how the creative arts contribute to our community as well as our own sense of purpose and well-being. The Sugarloafing Artscast is generously supported by the Govet Brewster Art Gallery and Len Lai Centre. Stay tuned to find out more. And with me in the studio today is Michael Bishop, who calls himself a late emerging writer and is from Hawaii. And he's here in Aotearoa on a Fulbright Fellowship to write about sacred ground and legal personhood in Taranaki. He's also had a career in environmental work and emergency rescue. Um, very fascinating background and I can't wait to hear more. Welcome, Mike. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. It's very cool to have you here. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and um, how come you ended up here in Taranaki? Well, I am originally from Hawaii and I spent a good part of my childhood there, but also ended up moving around a lot. So grew up partly in California, Colorado, but Hawaii was always calling me back. So when uh, when I had finished college, I moved back to Hawaii and really started to reintegrate into the community there. And I ended up getting involved in uh, rock climbing. I was working as a guide there for years and years. And uh, my boss eventually convinced us to get certified to do industrial work. Thus began my career in emergency rescue and environmental work. So I was there in Hawaii doing this, and um, I got hurt on the job. So I had uh, this really bad nerve injury. That sounds terrible. Like what? Falling off a rock? Well, the story is much less uh, climactic than that. (laughs) I, I was on a job to go to Guam to clean up unexploded ordnance on a cliffside firing range Oh no! next to a Navy base. And so we got hired to go there and rig the site and train this crew how to work on ropes and then be their standby emergency rescue. But none of this happened because there was a warship in the harbor that came in and was unloading munitions. So when this happens, they close the base. No civilians, no contractors get access. And we spent a week in Guam practicing emergency rescue scenarios in banyan trees in a park and snorkeling. And they sent us home because they didn't know when or if we would have a long enough window of opportunity to do the job. So I get back to Honolulu and I'm chasing after a giant duffel bag full of climbing gear on the airport baggage claim. I grabbed the bag with my arm fully extended, braced up against a little wall, and it just kind of yanked my arm a little bit, and it tore the nerves under my collarbone. 
So this was really what kind of turned my life upside down and is part of why I'm here though. Um, I spent two years in physical therapy and had several doctors tell me uh, very sensibly that I needed to find a new line of work. And as part of that process, I, I had been writing for years and years and years, and I figured, all right, well, if there's ever an opportunity to fully commit to this, <laughs> this must be it. So off I went to graduate school at the University of Idaho, um, where I studied creative nonfiction writing and started to try to unpack this injury and a little bit of what it meant to my identity, and also... I was really into place-based writing, so conceiving Hawaii not just as my home, but as an expansive place that radically shapes the people that are part of those landscapes and seascapes. So I was in this, working in this kind of nature writing tradition, and while I was in graduate school, um, there was a big protest in Hawaii over the construction of a giant telescope called the 30-meter telescope. So they proposed to build this next-generation ground-based telescope uh, near the summit of Mauna Kea on the Big Island of Hawaii, which is very sacred ground to the Hawaiian people. Mm. And this structure is 18 stories tall. It's the size of a football field. Oh, wow. The mirror is 30 meters. So this is just like an enormous industrial facility. And they're trying to build this near the summit of this sacred mountain on conservation land. And the Hawaiian people said, no, like enough is enough. Um, astronomy had progressed on the big island with very little involvement or consent or collaboration from the Hawaiian people. And this was sort of uh, a line that, that the astronomers crossed. And so the Hawaiian community rallied and stopped construction of this thing. And uh, there were these images of Kapuna, these Hawaiian elders, chained themselves together to block the road to the summit where these construction vehicles were slated to go up. And they basically like got dragged out of there at gunpoint. They were getting arrested. And so these images of some, like some of the police officers were, were Native Hawaiian as well. So you have Native Hawaiian police arresting Native Hawaiian elders over the construction of this astronomy project on sacred ground. And it was all just like a really kind of devastating cultural clash. Mm. How long ago was this? Uh, this was in 2016. I believe this started. And then in 2020, again, they made a push to begin construction again. And I happened to be back in Hawaii from grad school. I actually got a research grant to go to the American Astronomical Society conference in Honolulu. I wanted to be a fly on the wall oh, to interesting. see <laughs> what the astronomers made of this whole situation. And while I was there, I made a visit to the Big Island to go see Mauna Kea one last time before allegedly the construction was going to start. And uh, I happened to be there the morning that the whole community came together and declared it to be um, a place of refuge on the side of the mountain. And then it essentially turned into like almost like a little city, this huge encampment there that was protecting the Mauna. Must have been really powerful to be there. Yeah, yeah, to see the, the dawn ceremony, yeah. the consecration of this place. 
and this community coming together mm. to protect their sacred land was very powerful. It's interesting because um, New Zealand has also a lot of um, space involvement and astronomy programs and uh, I happened to stumble across uh, the NASA International Space Station people down on the most southern part uh, near Milford Sound in Teanau. Um, they were just presenting in the community hall because the Kepler was going to pass by and uh, it was the least light polluted place on earth that they have found and it was from there they kind of observed it and it was very um, surreal to be there doing a tramp in the beautiful Milford Sounds and suddenly NASA is in the community hall in Teano talking about all this high-tech stuff. Yeah, that's very <laughs> fascinating. Um, I've had some great fortune getting connected with some astronomy folks here as well. Um, but the moment that, that brought me here to Taranaki was the declaration of or the recognition of the Maunga as a, a living ancestor and as a, a legal entity. Yep. So this was happening around the same time that the Mauna Kea conflict was happening. And, you know, it, sacred ground here uh, seems at least, it seemed from afar at least, to be, you know, honored and respected and protected more effectively. Uh, to give legal personhood to a mountain stands in a stark contrast to the United States, where we came up with the idea to give legal personhood to corporations. And yet the mountains and volcanoes of Hawaii have Pele, the goddess of volcanoes, and, and who, you know, at least in folklore or legend, or maybe it is history for indigenous people, has created Hawaii. Absolutely, yeah. And there is a, a tradition of genealogy stemming from these mountains. So many people on the islands view them as their literal ancestors and regardless of what kind of cultural background you come from I think it it makes a great deal of sense to conceive of the land as your ancestor mm. uh, the waters of Hawaii and the soil of Hawaii grew the crops that fed my mother while she was pregnant with me and in a very real way I'm descended from those waters and that place mm. in much the same way that um, the Maori people around Taranaki an ancestral relationship with the place. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you also say that you don't claim an indigenous relationship to the people of Hawaii, but it's this nurturing and being brought up there. Yeah, there's a distinction in Hawaii that we have between Kama'aina, which is maybe like a local or person of the land, and Kanaka Maoli, is the people of Hawaiian descent. And I don't have any Hawaiian ancestry, but I do have deep, deep ties to the place. Mm. Beautiful. Okay, we will take a music break. And you have a chosen song for the Morning Star by Carlos Nakai. Um, any special reason? Um, yeah, I just wanted to maybe spread some awareness to Carlos Nakai. He's a very famous uh Native American uh, cedar flute player. He's of Navajo and Ute descent. And I think my mom turned me on to his music many, many decades ago. But uh, a song for the Morning Star, I figured, was appropriate because, uh, yeah, I'd like to spend some time talking about Puanga and Materiki as well. Great. Well, let's listen to Carlos Nakai.
Welcome back to Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. You are listening to the Sugar Loafing Artscast and I'm your host, Michaela Nyman. We are grateful for the sponsorship by Govette Brewster Art Gallery and Len Lice Center for this show. And with me in the studio today is Michael Bishop, who hails from Hawaii, and he is here in Aotearoa on a 2023 Fulbright Fellowship to write about sacred ground and legal personhood in Taranaki. And it's kind of fascinating to hear all the parallels, differences, but, uh, you know, still there are echoes and links of how things are done in Hawaii and how ground is sacred, mountains are sacred, and uh, how things are here, too. So can you talk a bit about your creative writing? So you hold an MFA in creative writing from the University of Idaho, and um, you say that you're an explorer of both uh, wilderness and consciousness alike, and that your writing is informed by studies in psychology and philosophy. So what is it that you that starts you off? Like, where do you draw your inspiration when you start off a piece of writing? Mm, I love this question. Um, I think that I, I begin with place. I think that my experience as a human being, as a cognitive entity, um, in contrast to kind of like the Cartesian thought experiment uh, where he says, I think, therefore I am. So everything begins with consciousness for him. For me, everything begins as an emplaced body. I am a being that exists in a certain space. And so I like to do justice to the ways that those spaces and places shape me. And often uh, those places will open up all sorts of associations and allow you to explore complex psychological or emotional or philosophical terrain through using the land for rich metaphor. Mm, absolutely. I. I'm very much with you there on, on place and embodiment is very much what uh, kind of starts me off as well. Uh, more poetry, uh, mm. I would say, than nonfiction. But um, can you talk a bit about your research specifically? How have you gone about it? Seeing that you come from Hawaii to here, you are talking about really a sacred mountain who is an ancestor in a different country. How do you go about brokering relationships with presumably local iwi and others whose ancestor you are really uh, researching? Um, I've, st I've explored this place from a number of different angles, including by just visiting the manga and spending time up there and trying to imagine the types of experiences that led to the cultural beliefs about the place. Uh, so for me, that was an interesting starting point, and it had led me to um, to Parihaka, um, to volunteering with the Taranaki Maunga project has been a very special experience, uh, to get out with some of these conservation workers and to see their vision of restoring the land this goal of recreating a habitat corridor from the summit of the Maunga all the way to the sea. And you have seen it from the air, presumably, what it looks like? Um, I've been up high enough on the mountain to see the, the boundary, the circular fenced-in portion of the, the native bush, 
and there's a there's kind of a deep sorrow in that for me and i'm sure for many uh local folks here to see that rich vibrant uh, biodiverse forest and then to see how much the landscape here has been altered um yeah so it was really it felt good to get my hands dirty and put some trees in the ground and go up on these like pretty extreme tracks to go monitor some uh, acoustic monitoring equipment to track kiwi repopulation efforts and yeah just spending time with people that have a special relationship with the mama mm. and uh of course, there has been a boom in the kiwi population, so there has been quite a few releases of kiwi on the Maunga this year as well. Have you been to any? Yeah, I was lucky enough to go to one um, courtesy of uh, Nahina Kapper. I went to, so this was at North Egmont, uh, just above the visitor center, and it was a really beautiful event to witness and uh, to see the, the kids going into the forest with the kiwi it was really a special moment oh fantastic so uh, do i dare to ask how far have you come gone into your research has it turned out as you expected it or have you been led astray and gone down multiple rabbit holes oh the rabbit holes are endless uh, i i purposefully come to my research with like a very open mind and allow myself to follow wherever this manga is going to take me and uh, part of that part of this spending time with people who have a special relationship with the manga has been uh, joining the Taranaki Alpine Club uh, and I'm no alpinist <laughs> but uh, I have been spending some time kicking around in crampons up on the, the mountain this winter and uh, that has been a very very special experience the formations of the ice on this mountain are unlike anything I've ever seen. Oh, so really? Fabulous. Yeah. Oh, it makes me want to go up. You know, there's an open mountain day every year, too, in February, March. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay, we will take another music break. And uh, you have um, selected uh, Lament by Ernesto Schnack. Okay, this guy is, uh, he's a... Panamanian fingerstyle guitar virtuoso. Uh, this piece is uh, one of his original compositions, but he kind of got famous on YouTube as a one-man cover artist. And I think we'll hear one of his covers a little bit later. Cool. Let's listen to Ernesto Schnack.
welcome back to Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. You're listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast, and I'm your host, Michaela Nyman. We are grateful for the sponsorship of Vet Bruce Art Gallery and Lenai Center. And with me in the studio today is a faraway visitor from Hawaii who's here on a Fulbright scholarship to uh, write about sacred gla- ground and legal personhood in Taranaki. And he has spent a lot of time up on the mountain and with people who have a special relationship with our Maunga. So Mike Bishop is a writer, mostly of creative nonfiction, you say. I'm also working on a book of poems. And you're working on a book of poems. In, at all inspired by Taranaki? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I draw so much inspiration from this whole area, from the top of the mountain to the waves and the sea. It's very, very fruitful. And uh, so could you talk a bit about the differences and parallels between what you find in Hawaii, where you live, and where you were brought up, and uh, here in Taranaki? And I know you have focused on on the League of Personhood and the mountain and everything, but uh, yeah, after eight, nine months here, what have you found? What are your takeaway messages? Uh, One of the most fascinating things that I've found here is the relationship between Maori astronomy and Western astronomy as compared to the way things have unfolded in Hawaii. Because there, there's a great deal of conflict between Hawaiian cultural practitioners and astronomers um, who have largely done their own thing without the involvement of the Hawaiian people and then sort of retroactively try to claim that their goals to explore the heavens and to learn more about humanity as a whole uh, mesh with the sort of like a Hawaiian celestial navigation legacy. So that rhetoric seems a bit disingenuous, whereas here um, I went to Lake Tekapo and spent Matariki there and got to meet a bunch of the astronomers that work at the observatory there, as well as the Dark Skies Project, which is a jointly created venture between the Naitahu, Iwi, the astronomers, and even interweaving uh, tourism. So it's sort of like using this International Dark Sky Reserve designation as a way to benefit all of the people of the area while creating this like joint venture to celebrate the night sky and the Maori tradition of astronomy. And it's it's been very, very fascinating to see how that's happened here. It gives me some maybe ideas or hope for how things might change in Hawaii, but I think that's a very, very long conversation. Well, it's kind of uh, both inspiring and, um, yeah, good to hear about because uh, we sit here and we know about these things but then they we kind of tend to forget as well so yeah I, I haven't seen anything for a long time about the dark skies project and and uh, all of that so it's good to hear that that could be a model for um, how you can interact somewhere else you know to yeah. celebrate yeah from from my perspective it's very successful and it was really a wonderful experience to be there during Matariki and to go to all of these workshops uh, led by members of the local iwi and teaching about traditional knowledge and traditional crafts and 
Uh, it was a very, very special experience. Although Matariki as a public holiday is very new to New Zealand. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Rangi Matamua is actually a member of the Fulbright New Zealand board. Uh, so I'm hoping to have a chance to have a chat with him before I go. Uh, so that would be pretty special. A good connection to have. Yes. Can you talk a bit about the Fulbright uh, program? So it's a very prestigious scholarship. It goes both ways. And people can go from New Zealand to the States as well as the other way and wider in the world as well, isn't it? Yeah, so the Fulbright program was created by uh, a senator, Senator Fulbright, and he wanted to create uh, stronger international connections through education and cultural exchange, leading to better diplomacy and, you know, a better world. That was the mission. So Fulbright is the State Department's flagship international educational exchange program, sending U.S. citizens to countries all over the world and then sending residents of those countries to the U.S. And Fulbright New Zealand has a wonderful program here where anyone from New Zealand can go to the U.S. for graduate study or independent research. Uh, I'm here hosted by the University of Auckland uh, doing independent creative research, uh, being that I'm six hours away from the University of Auckland. But many other folks in my cohort are here uh, in graduate school, and some of them are getting PhD offers to stay longer. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a really wonderful experience to come here. But the opportunity for uh, New Zealanders to go to the States is also a very, very special one. I would suggest that folks look into going to Hawaii if you want to see some of these cultural similarities going in the other direction. Mm. There was recently a Fulbright scholarship specifically aimed at the Pacifica researchers. And um, uh, I also interviewed Coco Solid, who has uh, written uh, her first novel, How to Loiter in a Turf War. And she was here and ran a zine workshop at um, Govet Brewster Gallery and at the uh, Zeal. And uh, she had been on a scholarship, Fulbright scholarship, doing her research. And that's how the novel came about, out of that research. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, there's a Pacifica writer, Gina Cole, that I believe is in Hawaii right now, or will be coming back shortly. So maybe we can get her on your show too. Yeah, short story writer of Black Eyes. <laughs> yeah, but she's in Auckland. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so we will take another break here. And um, you had selected um, Kyo. Is that how you say it? Bayaima. Yeah. Um, this is like, uh, I met someone at Burning Man, actually, who <laughs> randomly turned me on to this woman's music. And uh, yeah, I just found it to be sort of enchanting and beautiful and speaks to some themes related to, to sacred ground. Great. We'll listen to Cure by Yaima.
Welcome back to Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. You're listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast and I'm your host Michaela Nyman. We are grateful for the sponsorship by Govette Brewster Art Gallery and Lenlai Center. And with me here today is Michael Bishop who hails from Hawaii and he's here on a Fulbright scholarship to write about sacred ground and legal personhood in Taranaki hosted by the Auckland University but escaping to our beautiful Taranaki. <laughs> and the Burning Man is a fascinating place to be too. Yeah, when were you there? Hopefully not this year when it was... Actually, I did go this year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when they had terrible things happen there. Well, it rained for a couple of days and delayed everything. Um, I think the media made it out to be worse than it was because generally speaking, when you go to Burning Man, you're prepared for almost anything. You're prepared to live in a very harsh environment for you know, somewhere between a week and two weeks. In and the desert, self-sufficient. Think Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much some Mad Max vibes out there. But also relevant to a discussion on sacred ground. Um, for me, the heart of Burning Man is what's called the temple. And it's this beautiful, beautiful structure that usually gets hundreds of thousands of dollars of grant funding to build this. And then throughout the week, people use this space to either celebrate or mourn uh, anything that they need to. So it turns into sort of like a, a public shared collective grief space filled with tens of thousands of offerings and names and messages. And then the very last event of Burning Man is to burn this temple with tens of thousands of people watching their grief go up in flames. Very, very powerful experience. Mm. It sounds very cathartic. It has been on my list to do forever, but I don't think I'll get there. But it sounds absolutely fabulous. And uh, I think the collective part of um, ceremonies, they are so important, and we seem to have lost them in the Western world if we are not part of a church, that is. But otherwise, we are becoming more and more individualistic and uh, kind of losing that connectivity. We have just today talked about community rallying together and coming together and connecting better, you know, to link up. And I think we need it more than ever. Something else than just sitting on our own devices, isolated from each other. We've had that now, three years and more. Yeah. To the extreme. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the things that I participated in here was a, a stream bed restoration planting. And I think to me, that's quite emblematic of like a meaningful community ritual that can strengthen your ties to the land and repair the land and your community. And it's it's really wonderful to see that type of work happening here. And uh, there was an event out at the Parihaka where they burned biochar and where that collective that does a lot of the stream restoration was kind of showing how they used the weed mats and the biochar and to restore streams that have been vital for the people in the past but have been slammed up and, you know, are, are not good waterways anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Using all sorts of creative and innovative ways to, to regenerate the land and to, to recycle nutrients and materials into something that will be beneficial for everyone rather than toxic. Mm. So let's um, hear some of your work. You have 
something new to share with us. How exciting. <laughs> I do. I, I had a bit of a publication drought, but uh, at the start of this month, I had a few short pieces published in a magazine called About Place Journal. Um, but I also have a long essay coming out, hopefully at the beginning of December, in Boulevard Magazine. Uh, this is called Surf Lessons. Lesson one. Kailua Beach is a scythe of powdery, bone-white sand that bisects two worlds, one of jungled volcanic ridges and coconut palms, the other of coral heads and crumbling white caps. I step out onto the low coastal dunes. A stiff onshore breeze whips against the long surfboard tucked under my arm, catching it like a sail and staggering me. I've just emerged from a narrow path fenced between two blocks of opulent beach houses, a path from asphalt and concrete and boutiques and private property leading into a vibrant world of windswept sand and salt and waves. An ecotone between the terrestrial and the aquatic where ghost crabs scuttle over the pulverized remains of coral skeletons, Kailua Beach is also a place that might reasonably be said to punctuate my life. Here, my past and my future are like two clauses, let's say, simultaneously divided and conjoined by a semicolon. Steadying my new longboard with both hands and leaning into the wind, I trudge toward the north end of the beach that will become my first training ground. The surfboard is a hand-shaped work of art. It's nine feet, one inch long, 22 inches wide, two and three quarters of an inch thick. The fiberglass deck is airbrushed with tentacular clouds of neon greens and bloody reds. Two interlocking diamonds span its entire length and a devilish black skull with a single horn protruding from the center of its forehead grins in the middle. The board's tapered rails and narrow tail mark it as a high performance longboard or so I was told by the chiseled Hawaiian I bought it from. I don't yet have any idea what a high-performance longboard is, as this is my first surfboard. Beneath the tail, there's a 10-inch ultramarine fiberglass fin flanked by a shorter pair of unnecessarily sharp ones. The man who sold me the board offered me the choice between two sets of side fins. I'd gone with the ones he said were more high-performance and that would turn better. He might have raised an eyebrow, but also well knew that surfing is a sport that goads beginners and experts alike into hubris. I remember when I took the fins from him, I ran my thumb along their edges and felt that I could cut myself if I pressed hard enough. The only blemish on the board is a strip of gray duct tape midway down the right-hand edge. I'd injured this hauntingly beautiful craft before I'd ever even gotten it wet. I'd moved back to Hawaii after a decade away, and approaching 30, I'd bought myself a surfboard as a homecoming Christmas gift, a way to cling to my youth, and, I'll soon come to find, a way to tempt the demons of addiction with something healthier than booze. Just before my cousin and I were about to embark on our maiden voyage, I leaned the board against the chain-link fence beside his house. He swung the gate closed with a jolt, and I watched in horror as my longboard rattled along the fence, then cracked to a stop against the metal latch. 
leaving an inch-long gash in its rail. I could see the absorbent foam core of the board, so I knew I needed to seal the wound before getting it wet. I hadn't yet learned the fine art of fiberglass ding repair and was eager to, eager to get in the water, so I settled for a hasty fix. Good old duct tape. And so it came to be that upon reaching the north end of Kailua Beach, a spot known as Castles, where a jumbled mess of knee-high waves crumble beneath onshore trade winds, I leashed myself to this vengeful, demon-faced, and razor-finned longboard and paddle into the ocean to see what I'm made of. I'm out of my element. I've spent most of my 20s living in the Colorado foothills, scaling cliffs and mountains, testing my nerves on solid ground. The waves, by contrast, are choppy and mercurial, the wind unceasing, stinging my eyes with salt spray. I've lost my sea legs, but my chosen arena of castles is beginner-friendly, a euphemism for not particularly dangerous for a number of reasons. The waves are small and weak. Only cosmic syzygy can summon a chest-high wave here. The bottom is powdery sand with a few sparse outcrops of coral, and due to the very mediocre quality of the waves, it rarely gets crowded. I'm the only surfer in the water. After a handful of lessons from a friend, I've started going by myself. It's exhausting and frustrating, but even catching a tiny wave is exhilarating enough to get me hooked. I'm straddling my longboard, bobbing and swaying with each passing swell, waiting for something to emerge from the chaotic interference pattern of overlapping waves. White flashes of Neville shearwaters glide above the water, looping in long arcs back toward their nests on Flat Island, two miles toward the southern edge of Kailua Bay. My hips and core are in dialogue with the sea, but it's a language I don't yet understand. Balancing on my board is awkward, turning and maneuvering it more so. It's not an uncommon sight to see a beginning longboarder lean too far back, lifting the nose of their board into the air, and even on occasion losing control of it entirely, sending the board springing forward between their legs while they splash backward into the water. This is also probably why most beginning surfers don't have razor-edged fins on their boards. I'm mesmerized by the rocking of the waves, the warm light of this tropical winter day, the gentle lapping at my waist. A three-foot wave coalesces out of the deep, cutting through my days. I lean back and swing my board toward the shore. Sure enough, I've moved too quickly, too carelessly. The board escapes my grasp and leaps into the air. One of its sharp little fins chops the inside of my ankle as a parting gift while the wave washes over me, plunging me onto my back. Smirking at myself as I clamber out of the water, a crimson slash across my ankle, not quite to the bone, I tell myself, or have the waves told me, I'd better be more careful with these fins. The cut hurts enough that I worry about how deep it's gone. Behind me, a faint pink trail dissolves into the sea as I paddle back to shore with imaginary hammerheads on my heels. Oh, thank you. That was very beautiful and very visceral. Have you had a chance to go surfing here at all? Yeah, I've been out up and down the coast a little bit. Um, 
it's quite a bit colder here and it's very windy. <laughs> so I, I go when the chance arises. But yeah, I've had some very, very wonderful time surfing here as well. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Mike. And where can people find um, more about your research or your writing? Uh, this piece will be coming out in Boulevard Magazine, hopefully at the beginning of December. Online? Uh, I believe it will be available online as well, yeah. So stay tuned at Boulevard Magazine if you want to read more surf lessons. Great. And uh, good luck with your research and uh, can't wait to see what comes out of it. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful to be here. And safe travels back to Hawaii. Thank you. Let's listen to Ernesto Schnack.
for tuning in to this week's episode of the Sugarloafing Artscast on 104.4 FM. My name is Michaela Nyman and you can contact me with feedback and ideas for shows at Access Radio Taranaki or email me on community at accessradiotaranaki.com. You can check out the artists, guests and their fabulous work on our Sugarloafing Facebook page and Instagram. To listen to previous episodes of the show, go to accessradiotaranaki.com and search us up under current shows. The Sugarloafing Artscast was made possible with the support of Govet Brewster Art Gallery and the Len Lai Centre. Until next week. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand on air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.